You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church, or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Good morning. Word of life. It's great to be able to come and be a part of this weekend service. Glad you're able to come and join and be a part of this with us. Um, before we get into the message, I do want to make sure that we pull attention to the fact that we have a couple of people here this morning that are um, a massive part of this church history. Firstly, um, Carmen Durst. You want to give everyone a wave, Carmen, because I know you love attention. Um, Carmen was the administrator and the principal of Word of Life Christian Academy for 14 years, um, did an incredible job building it so I could get it where it is today. So Carmen, great to see you. Carmen, the family moved to Virginia a little over a year ago, but delighted you're here. And we also have Pastor Mike and Ann Chiz, back from Myrtle Beach. And uh, for those of you that may be new to the church, um, Mike and Ann are founding members of the church, and uh, for the past few years, Mike served as the uh, care pastor here, and they're a wonderful couple. Um, It's important that we all know that we treat Carmen with unquestioned dignity, respect, honor. Um, Mike is a different story. Now, I wanted to let this go by without saying anything, but Megan said, if you don't say these jokes, you're in it. So under duress, I want to share a few jokes with you. Mike, I want you to know I love you. Mike loves retirement because it means he can do nothing all day and not have to worry about getting caught. I'm not saying Mike is lazy, but if he won an award for being lazy, he would send someone else to get the trophy. I'm also not saying Mike is old, but his candles cost more than the birthday cake. (laughs) I'm really not saying that Mike is old, but when he was a kid, the Dead Sea was just starting to feel sick. (laughs) And even though Mike is so handsome, he went to the zoo and the zookeepers started freaking out, chasing him, saying, he's escaped, he's escaped. (laughs) I'll stop there. Mike, it is wonderful to see you, and glad you're here. You guys are wonderful. I hope you always feel at home. Carmen, I hope you, anytime you and the family are here, part of service, I hope you feel at home and you feel truly loved and appreciated. Come on, can we hear it for these guys? They really are the best of the best. So uh, a number of weeks ago, we were sort of thinking through, myself and Megan, and we were looking at the calendar, and we were sort of making some plans for the summer series, and we believe we've identified what would be uh, hopefully a really encouraging, really helpful uh, summer series that we're going to spread over a a nine-week period, and we've got a plan for that, Um, and it sort of left us wondering about what are we going to do with June. So we started, uh, you know, planning this summer series, and it was going to, you know, go over July and then August, so we started wondering, you know, well, what do we do with June, and through conversation with Megan, she said, you know what, just listening to conversations here at the church, just listening to um, the people that make up our congregation, it just seems like right now it is the right time for us to bring a level of hope and a level of, you know, come on, a level of encouragement, a level of strengthening. And so after sort of considering that, we kind of continue talking and praying. And so for the month of June, we're going to be in this series that we've just simply called Overcome. And we believe that it's the right time that, you know, that the people that make up our church, that there is a sense of, you know what, we can overcome. There's a season that we're in right now, or there's a challenge that we're facing right now, but in Jesus' name, we can indeed overcome. And so today we're continuing. Last week we got this kicked off, but we're continuing today, and we're calling it Overcoming Doubt. 
overcoming doubt. Life has a way of bringing doubt. Doubt can look in a number of different ways. It can be varied. It can cause us to question things like, is God real at all? It can cause us to question things like, is God able to do what I hope He does? Have I disqualified myself from God's love and His goodness? Have I done so many bad things that I'm not going to heaven anymore? All these questions start to come up, and these questions start to lead to doubt within our lives. And hopefully we consider some of these questions today, some of these thoughts today, some of these causes of doubt that you may be experiencing in your life or you may have experienced in your life. And my hope is that by the time we're done today, the areas of life that are bringing doubt to you are addressed and that you have a renewed sense of confidence in who Jesus is and the promises of God. The passage that we're going to start off with today is one of many examples that we have in the New Testament of Jesus casting out an evil spirit from somebody. And we don't talk a lot about demonic activity and casting out evil spirits, but it's a key part of the passage from the life of Jesus that we're going to be looking at today. If you're reading along with the New Testament plan that uh, we've put together here at a church, we're nearly at the end of Luke's gospel, and we will have read, if you're following with us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, numerous times that Jesus and the disciples took spiritual authority and cast out evil spirits. Now, while we don't talk or think about demonic activity, if you spend time listening to people who minister overseas where there is still a high awareness of spirituality, then they'll often talk about story after story of demonic activity. If you ever you spend time listening to a missionary that's overseas in places where things like witchcraft and, uh, you know, sort of animism and all kinds of spirituality is still at the forefront of people's minds, there's oftentimes story after story of demonic activity. I myself saw two women in India who appeared to be demonically possessed, and I watched as somebody prayed for them, and in a very dramatic way, they suddenly ceased any erratic behavior as the name of Jesus was declared. And so even though there certainly are stories from here within the U.S., it's not as expected that we would, uh, it's not as expected, it's not a day-to-day anticipation from us. It's certainly not as expected or as common as we read about as we read the story of Jesus and we read the New Testament. But we realize that we do see demonic activity on a day-to-day basis. You and I, we shouldn't be ignorant that spiritual activity, both good and bad, is very present and active. Think about all the evil that is very present in the world. Think about the role that addictions play in 21st century America. Think about the relentless temptation that you and I face. Think about the growing obsession with self in our culture and the many, many other damaging things that we see every day. Though it's not necessarily as evident or obvious as the description we can read in the New Testament of demonic activity, I would say that there is clearly spiritual warfare all around us. And for us today, the main point that we're going to focus on within the story isn't the demon possession of a boy that Jesus is going to pray for, but rather the exchange that happened with Jesus and the boy's father. At this point, Jesus had been up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. It's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus comes down the mountain, the other nine disciples are arguing with some of the religious experts. And Jesus asks why they're arguing. And that's when a man speaks up and explains that he brought his son to be delivered from the evil spirit that has been tormenting his son. He asked the disciples to help, but they were unable to. And somehow this starts an argument with some religious leaders. And it's this mess that Jesus walks into and he takes charge and he helps the boy. So we're going to pick this up partway through the story in Mark 9, 21. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. 
What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now, there's so much happening in this story, and I've only read a few verses, and there's, of course, way much more to the whole story. But I think it's important for us to focus on the request from the Father. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That strange paradox of I do believe, but yet unbelief is also present and active within my heart. Surely that's something we can all identify with. Lord, I'm committed to you. I trust you. I'm loyal to you. But help me with my weak commitment. Help me with my lack of trust. Help me with my disloyalty. Lord, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. But Lord, I'm struggling to follow you today. Jesus, you are Lord of all creation. There is nothing above you, nothing that is greater or more important than you. But Lord, help me because there's a lot of things making me forget that. We should acknowledge, my friends, that we are all in this together. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been in church leadership most of that time. I've been a full-time pastor for 10 years. I'm committed to spending my life following Jesus and helping other people do the same. And this message was as challenging and relevant for me as any other sermon I've ever prepared. Getting ready for this morning, it caused a lot of introspection. I drew a lot from my personal experiences. The moments where I've doubted whether God is going to pull me through, whether he's going to make a way, it was a challenge. And so everybody here, I want to ask us that we are in this together. Each and every one of us, everyone listening to this, please don't assume that this is for someone else. Take this to heart. Embrace the challenge. Take the comfort. Take the teaching from the Scriptures. The Father in our passage, He teaches us something and He gives us an example. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's asking Jesus to help Him with His unbelief. He's asking Jesus to help Him with His doubts. This father acknowledged that I have doubts and questions and fears and uncertainties and indifference and forgetfulness, and it's all mixed in with my belief that you are indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus, help me overcome these doubts and straighten this all out. And this moment is recorded in the Scriptures and serves as an example for us. We are invited to pray for God's help so we can overcome doubts. Doubts and unbelief, they can show self differently. We can start with things like, is God real? That doubt is very real for many of us. Is the gospel true? But also more complicated and even more nuanced, things like, does God love me? Have I sinned too much? Is the absolute worst going to happen? Is God punishing me? Is God going to come through for me? There's very common things that come up, even if we don't necessarily articulate it. Like, is following Jesus worth it? Isn't it better and easier to just go along with the crowd? Is following Jesus and the sacrifice and all that's involved, is this truly the best way I can spend my life? And I've got seven causes of doubt that we're going to go through today. Because there's seven, with the time that we have, we're not going to be able to do a deep dive into any of these. So rather, we're going to sort of spread a wide net and we're going to skim some of these, but maybe one or two of these will stick with you. If one or two of these really sort of register with you, maybe you'll have a chance this week to look into the Bible a little bit and reflect on a little bit more and pray through it a little bit and see what it has to say. I also want to make a reminder that this is true today and it's true every week. Um, we've started putting the sermon notes online. So normally, uh, Monday or Tuesday in the week, the notes that I'm speaking from today um, or whoever's preaching on a Sunday will be up online. The address is wordoflifeag.org slash notes. And so anything that I'm going through today will be on there. So if you're not taking notes, you can always go to the website and catch a hold of those. But I've got seven. Is everyone ready for seven? 
Alrighty, common causes of doubt. Number one, doubt because of danger. Doubt because of danger. Mark 4, 35. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why were you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. It's worth pointing out from this passage that the fear that the disciples were experiencing, it wasn't misplaced. It wasn't irrational. This summer, many people in this room are going to be boating on different lakes around central New York. And if a storm comes, so much so that waves are crashing into the boat, it's not going to be irrational or illogic or misplaced that that would bring fear. It is a true danger. And for us today, let's take this as an analogy, this portion of Scripture, that scary things happen. Situations that drive fear into us happen. The prospect of what's going to happen next is terrifying. In the middle of fear, there's plenty of room for doubt to come in. But when we're freaking out, with good reason, Jesus is calm and enjoying a nap. And if he's calm, if he's still confident that he is in control, if he is truly the one who knows the beginning from the end, that should bring comfort to us. Of course, this is so much easier said than done when the storms are raging and the boat is crashing around in the waves, taking a nap is near impossible. It's easy to see that these situations where fear is very real, doubt about what is going to come next, is God still in control? Has he abandoned me to a sinking ship? Those doubts very easily come in. And as difficult as it may be, as illogical as it may be, if he's calm, even asleep, that says something about how I need to catch a breath and lean into the calm and the peace that he's showing me. Number two, common causes of doubt. Number two, doubt because of distress. Doubt because of distress. Mark 14, 27. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, declared Peter emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. A common theme throughout the Gospels is that talk is cheap. Big, bold promises don't count for much, but our action and follow-through is what matters. Unfortunately, Peter fails and doesn't live up to his big declaration after Jesus is arrested. We can read further on in the same chapter. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warning himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you're one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. 
Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Now, before we give Peter too much of a hard time about this, we should recognize the extreme pressure and the distress that he's under at this time. At this point, the disciples, they don't know what's going to happen to Jesus. He's been arrested, and they know that the people arresting him want to crucify him. If the Romans decide that Jesus is enough of a troublemaker that they need to kill him, being one of Jesus' closest friends, being one of the disciples and ministry leaders is a very dangerous place to be in. Under the distress and under the pressure, Peter forsakes Jesus. And we still see this today. Recently, a pro baseball player spoke up for something that he believed impacted his faith. Because of the pressure from the media and his team, within a few hours, he was on live TV backpedaling everything he had said the day before, begging for forgiveness because he had spoken out. Pressure and distress are a big cause of doubt. Even the word pressure, the picture of being compressed and squeezed. In the case of Peter, it's a relief that Jesus not only forgave Peter for denying him, but also reinstated him as a key leader in the Jesus movement and the early church. But in moments of pressure, it squeezes what's truly inside of us out. And if we don't like what the pressure is squishing out of us, because of God's amazing grace, we can change it. There was another occasion where the pressure was getting to Peter and Paul didn't like what was coming out of the situation. So Paul confronted Peter and once again, Peter adjusted how he was doing. The rest of Peter's story is told through the book of Acts. We see he continued to face high pressure and highly distressing moments again and again. But what was revealed after this moment of denial was forever changed. For Peter, the pressure that he faced, the future pressure that he would experience, produced faithfulness. What the pressure squeezes out of you doesn't have to be the end of the story. If pressure reveals something ugly or exposes something toxic, my friends, it is not too late to change. On to our third one. Common causes of doubt. Number three, doubt because of delay. Doubt because of delay. You may have noticed by now that these all begin with D, which is the preacher's favorite thing all throughout the world. This psalm was written by David while King Saul was terrorizing him and threatening his life. Meanwhile, David knows that his future means he is going to be king one day. And still he writes this, Psalm 13, verse 1. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? If you've never felt like this, it's just a matter of time. How long will you forget me? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle? How long will I have sorrow in my heart every day? When life isn't going as we believe it should and we're waiting, when there seems to be a delay, it's exhausting. It takes a toll on us, and it's definitely a major cause of doubt. A silly illustration that I thought of, an example of this is, um, have you ever booked a shuttle at an airport that's going to take you, um, you know, from the airport to wherever you're staying on vacation, but you don't go through like a reputable company that you've ever heard of? You know what I'm saying? It's just like an internet, you know, pop-up with, you know, Lucky Joe's, you know, truck and toes, and they're going to drive you from the airport to where you're going, you know what I mean? And it's just an extra $30, and you pay, and then you get to the airport, and you're just looking around waiting. Okay, I don't see anywhere for Lucky Joe's. I don't, and you're just waiting for this shuttle, hoping that it turns up. And the longer you wait for this mystery shuttle to turn up, the more doubt creeps in about whether it's going to turn up at all. That can be the nature of waiting. 
The longer we're waiting, believing for something, believing a breakthrough is going to come, believing that something is going to happen, believing that God's promises are going to be revealed in our lives, the longer we wait, the more room there is for doubt to creep in. The Bible is full of stories of people waiting. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. Joseph was in an Egyptian prison for 13 years. Moses waited 40 years in the desert waiting to get to the promised land. One of the things that Peter writes about in his second letter is to address the doubt that had come into the believers because the second coming hadn't happened yet. And Peter assures them that God is not delayed, but he's working on his time frame with his purposes. If you're waiting, it's because God is still working. If you've been waiting longer than you would have thought you needed to, please be assured God is still working. Number four, doubt because of disappointment. Doubt because of disappointment. I'm going to read a passage in just a moment from Lamentations, but it's worth sharing some background that for hundreds of years, God had sent prophets to the Old Testament people in Israel and Judah. Um, the prophets were warning people that they needed to repent and turn back to God, otherwise his judgment would come. These warnings continued for literally centuries, and the people refused to listen. They didn't repent, and they didn't return to God. And as warned, God's judgment came. The Babylonian Empire overthrew Jerusalem. They exiled a massive portion of the Jewish people to Babylon 900 miles away. The devastation, the pain, the hopelessness was unimaginable. Jeremiah was one of the prophets that God had raised up to warn people that this was coming. And after the Babylonians had swept through, he wrote a short book that we have in the Old Testament called Lamentations. These are the opening verses showcasing the disappointment. Lamentations 1.1. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night, tears streaming down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there was no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down, and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper. For the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor. But now she has fallen to her enemy, and there is no one to help her. Her enemy struck her down and laughed as she fell. And trust me, if you keep reading the book of Lamentations, it just gets worse and worse. We all know disappointments. Some are more serious than others. Some are more significant than others. But we all know that feeling. We all know that doubt can definitely take a foothold when we're feeling disappointed. An example that came to mind as I was thinking about this is um, it's been three years since Megan and I came up um, to be a part of Word of Life. But when we came to the end of our time at the church we were pastoring at before coming here, um, we weren't sure what our next step was going to be. We knew it was the right time for us to move on from that church, but we weren't sure where we were going to be next. One of the phone calls I started to make was to um, a friend I had that was part of a, a church that we wanted to be a part of, a church we wanted to work with, and they had a Bible college. And my dream position was to be a lecturer at that Bible college. 
And I got in touch, and I tried figuring it out. I even said no to another job at that church so I could try and get this job with this college. And I tried, and I interviewed, and it just didn't come together. Now, at the time, we didn't know that Word of Life was going to be getting in touch with us in just a few weeks. But this was the job. This was it, Lord. This is the goal. Lord, it would be so amazing to work with these college students and teach them the Bible. Oh, my goodness, I would love it so much. Lord, please, this is your moment. Nope, not going to happen. What I didn't know then, in the middle of disappointment, was that that college and that church would go through incredible moral failures. The college itself would end up being relocated from uh, one state to another. And the idea that we came yay close to being wrapped up in that mess, such a relief. But that was in the middle of disappointment. And of course, we get to be up here and we get to hang out with you and we get to be part of Word of Life until I retire. Come on, somebody. But we didn't know that at the time. Massive disappointment. Now, you may have had disappointments that are far more serious than about some job at a college, but I've seen countless people, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I've seen countless people that have turned something painful, the deepest kind of desperation, the deepest kind of disappointment, and they've been able to turn that because of God's faithfulness into something good. It doesn't mean that people would look back on that season of disappointment and say, I'm glad that tragic thing happened. I'm glad this mistreatment happened. I'm glad this terrible, awful moment happened. But what they can say is that it wasn't wasted because today God is pulling something good out of it. That can look different. It can be different in many different circumstances. But I have seen over and over again that the pain isn't wasted if we grab onto God and we keep going and we don't let doubt come in and rob us of the future that could come from some deeply painful moments. I'm going to move on to number five. Doubt because of double-mindedness. Doubt because of double-mindedness. James 1, verse 6, but when you ask, when you're praying, when you're coming to the Lord, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, what does it mean to be double-minded? It appears from everything I've been able to find this week that um, being double-minded means adding Jesus to the list of deities or gods or superstitions or rituals that they're trying to get an answer from. With a double-mindedness, Jesus is one of many on a list of places we're trying to get help from. It speaks to a lack of loyalty and commitment to Jesus and instead treating him like he's one out of a bunch. For us in our culture, it might mean that when we need help, we check in with our horoscope, and then we ask everyone at work what they think, and then we see what the experts on TikTok have to say, and then we also want to see, you know, well, what does Jesus have to say about this? And then we cross-check that with what our favorite celebrities or influencers think, and then we see if there's a quote from Buddha that might help us feel good and all this. And like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, Jesus and Jesus alone deserves the first and final word. From what we, if one person claps, we all have to. From what we've read in James, if someone mixes Jesus in with a whole list of other sources of wisdom and sustenance, don't expect him to play along. The King of kings and Lord of lords is not one among many. He alone is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will not be rolled into a package deal. He alone is worthy. James, throughout his book, 
he also gives us the promises of what believers should expect when we are not double-minded, but rather completely loyal and faithful and committed to Jesus. James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our lifetime of honor, praise, loyalty, commitment, obedience, and worship. My friends, please don't let doubt cause you to question whether he deserves the throne in your life when he has proven again and again just how worthy he is. Number six. All right, we're going along at lightning pace. We're doing well. Number six, doubt because of distractions. Doubt because of distractions. In Paul's letters in the New Testament, he often names people that he's working with or people who are supporting him in the ministry or mutual friends that he has with the people he's writing to or somebody that he may want to thank publicly for the different ways they've helped. But one of the people that he mentions three times in his letters is a man named Demas. And let's look at what Paul writes about Demas in Colossians. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. And the letter to Philemon. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Now, who is Demas? The two passages we just read, it doesn't tell us much, but it certainly appears that Demas was a part of the ministry team. Demas was a part of the team that traveled with Paul throughout the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. Demas would have witnessed miracle after miracle. He would have endured difficulties and the threats of prison or beatings or death. He was close to Paul as he was writing letters that we now have in the New Testament, letters that have changed the world. Demas would have had a front row seat to listen to Paul the Apostle preach the gospel and teach the Scriptures. But in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Someone that had a front row seat Someone that got to see all that Paul saw in his ministry, the wonderful ways that Paul was used by God and the rest of the team was used by God to preach the gospel, the miracles that they saw, all of it with the threat of prison and death. Demas got a front row view to all of it. And yet, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. He loves the things of this life and he's gone to Thessalonica to live it up. The lure of the world, it's a constant distraction. The empty promises are a constant distraction. And the questions of doubt persist. Is it worth saying no to all this just to keep steady in your faith? Demas was not the last person who has taken this bait. There are massive numbers of people who have tried to cash in the empty promises only to get ripped off. I'm not sure where this phrase originated. I first heard it from Pastor Lisa, our kid's pastor. And what she said to me one time is that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The best thing to do is to not stray from the path. The second best thing is to come back now. The best thing is to stop adding to the list of regrets and get help now. Number seven, 
common causes of uh, doubt. Doubt because of drifting. Doubt because of drifting. Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, the assumption here from this verse from Romans is that general conformity is the default, that the behavior and customs of the world are what we will easily and naturally drift into. The ways of thinking, how decisions are made, what kinds of attitudes we adopt, a sense of right and wrong, we naturally and very easily default to the world around us. What's unusual and what will stand out is the new creation. What will take intentionality and discipline and repentance and help and mentoring and humility is embracing the new life Jesus paid the price for you and I to have. The default will always be to adjust to the world we live in. The default will be to drift into the behaviors and customs of the world around us. Swimming upstream, it's difficult. Standing out is difficult. Being an outlier is difficult. Doubt creeps in very easily when we start to question whether it's worth it. I mentioned earlier as I talked about um, applying for this college I wanted to work for, but in that same time period, um, there was about a three-month stretch between our our time at our previous church coming to an end and then moving up here to be a part of Word of Life. And in that three months, I was able to get a job working uh, at a cell phone store. And the cell phone store, I'm going to go ahead and say it was just a normal place to work. Now, I've been in church work for a long time, and so I'd forgotten what it was like. In church, people aren't perfect. We all know that. But people are generally nice and agreeable, and, you know, there's not a ton of gossip floating around, and, you know, people generally aren't out to get each other, and, you know. Then I went to go work at the cell phone store. I forgot what it was like. My appreciation, (laughs) my understanding for people that sit in pews in churches every Sunday just went through the roof. People aren't walking into a kind, gracious, God-honoring environment for work on Monday morning. The only way to survive is to have a deep resolve. I am going to live with a kingdom set of values. I'm going to be okay with being different. I will not run away from swimming upstream. Now, historically, this has often been twisted so people feel they have to be a religious psychopath at work, rattling a swear jar and tutting every time someone offends them. But let us remind us, well-known passage, and we're going to be exploring this all summer long, but I'll say it here for us today. Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. If the Holy Spirit is active in your life, if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, this is the kind of stuff that will be overflowing out of your life almost effortlessly. If the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, the fruit, the consequences that will come, what will be produced in your life is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When believers act like this, when believers act like this, it communicates the love of God. It's very, very different to what many of you will experience tomorrow morning at work. How many on this list, and Paul sort of articulates this fruit of the Spirit in nine different ways, how many of those nine are you going to experience when you're going to work tomorrow? But what a great way for us to stand out and be different. When everyone else is getting flustered, how about instead you show patience? When it's time for you to be assertive in a group conversation, wouldn't it be better if it was wrapped in gentleness? Wouldn't it be great to have a reputation for being someone that brings joy to the place? 
Don't you think that if we acted with kindness and decency to people, that we would earn the trust and respect of those around us? Now, you can't please everyone, but I'd rather try and earn the goodwill of some by showing the fruit of the Spirit in the best way possible. Rather than compromise to fit in, I'd rather be flowing with the fruit of the Spirit wherever I go. Common causes of doubt, danger, distress, delay, disappointment, double-mindedness, distractions, and drifting. Doubts may be real. Doubts may even be inevitable, but let's decide that we are going to overcome. When danger comes, as difficult as it may be, as illogical as it may be, if he's calm, even asleep when the storm is raging, that says something about how I need to catch a breath and lean into the calm and the peace that he's showing me. In moments of distress or pressure, it squeezes what's truly inside of us out. And if we don't like what the pressure is squeezing out of us because of God's amazing grace, we can change what's inside of us. Peter's experience of distress and pressure He didn't like what it revealed about him, and he successfully changed. Doubt can come because of delay. The Bible is full of stories of people waiting. If you're waiting, it's because God is still working. If you've been waiting longer than you thought you needed to, then please be assured God is still working. I've seen countless people turn something painful, truly tragic moments, the absolute worst disappointments you and I can imagine, And I've seen people turn them into something good. People who have taken the the absolute worst moments of their lives and they've seen God bring something good out of it. It doesn't mean that they're glad or happy that the tragic moment happened, but it does mean that the pain is not wasted. And the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, He is not one among many. He alone is seated at the right hand of the Father. He won't be rolled into a package deal. He alone is worthy. Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our honor, praise, loyalty, commitment, obedience, and to have the central place of lordship in our lives. My friends, please don't let doubt cause you to question whether he deserves the throne in your life. Don't allow doubt to bring double-mindedness in when he has proven again and again just how worthy he is. And the law of the world, it's a constant distraction. The empty promises are always there screaming at us and questions of doubt persist. Is it worth saying no to all of this just to keep steady in our faith? The best thing to do is to not stray from the path, but we should never forget that the second best is to come back now. And we all know you can't please everyone, but let's try and earn the goodwill of some by showing the fruit of the Spirit out of our lives in the best possible way, not compromising to fit in, but let's stand out for the best possible reasons rather than drifting. A few other thoughts that I wrote down to help us with this whole idea of overcoming doubts that I wanted to share with you. Firstly, I would say is that find the definite. Find the definite. When I think about this, what comes to my mind is I often reflect and I often think about the New Testament writers that say, I'm an eyewitness to this. If you are here at Easter, I talked about this quite a lot, but this idea of we are eyewitnesses to this. We saw Jesus. We saw him resurrected. And I always remind myself, why would they lie? That's the definite. Whenever there's a moment of doubt, whenever there's a moment of question, I often remind myself, Tom, there are people that gave their lives to continue this message. And they had absolutely no human motive for lying at all. You might find one person willing to die for a lie. You only find in 12. 
why would they like? That's a definite that I keep coming back to. Other people, they, they study and they enjoy getting into uh, Christian philosophy. Others looking at the science behind creation or apologetics. But find something that is definite and concrete and settled. And when moments of doubt come, lean on it. The next piece of advice I'd share with you is plan for the long term. Plan for long term. Be in it for the long haul. The call to follow Jesus is not an invitation for a crazy weekend or to be blessed for a month. It's a lifelong decision. In a moment when you're on a spiritual mountain, when you're having a moment with the Lord and it's like a high point, you're having a moment where you experience God in a powerful way, in those moments remind yourself, I'm in this for life. When you're experiencing God and it's a mountaintop experience and many of you will know exactly what I'm talking about and it's amazing to encounter God in such a powerful way in that moment, Remind yourself, I'm in this for life. And here's a perspective. If Jesus was ever at any moment for real, he's always for real. Because Jesus cannot temporarily or occasionally be the savior of the world. If it was ever true, it's always true. Which means if you've ever had a moment in your life when you've known that God is for real, a single experience when you know that the gospel is true, that should be the inspiration for you to make a lifelong commitment. But in his grace and his kindness, he keeps giving us those moments where we know that we know. He keeps giving us those mountaintop experiences. And I truly hope that in those moments, you dig down deep and make fresh commitments. Lord, I'm here. I'm with you. This is for the rest of my life. You have the words of my life. Why on earth would I go somewhere else? I'm sticking to you no matter what. Next piece of advice I'd share with you. Have true expectations. Have true expectations. The world is unfair. The world is unfair. When Jesus returns and he fully installs the kingdom that he launched 2,000 years ago, The promise is, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The brokenness of humanity will be fully healed. My friends, until then, we are still living in the broken, fallen world. Watching the world around us, it can cause us to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? I honestly believe a better question is, in a world where bad things do happen to good people, how should we navigate life? Have true expectations. Next thing, remember the key moments. Remember the key moments. If you are here last week, I spent a long time sort of thinking about this whole idea, about those moments where God comes through. You're a part of a miracle. You see God move in an unexplainable way. You have a moment where it's like, oh my goodness, God did something incredible. Then, in the Old Testament, the biblical example, they would build an altar. They would set up a pillar. They would set up a monument. They would have a festival. They'd remember often. What do we need to do in our lives to remember those moments? Remember the key moments. And the next thing I would say, be dependent on prayer. Be dependent on prayer. This brings us back to the passage we started with in Mark 9. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, You spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? 
Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Dependent on prayer, it's one of the core values we have here at the church. And the father asked, help me overcome my unbelief. The disciples wanted to know why they weren't able to cast out the spirit. And Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. That's why one of our core values is to be dependent on prayer, to overcome doubt from the passage we've been reading in Mark 9 is interwoven with prayer, spending time in communication with God, not simply bringing our request to Him, but praising Him and listening and learning His heart, taking moments to pray. I've heard someone say recently that you know, the, the idea of a believer having a prayer life is, is sort of shrinking more and more and it's dwindling. The idea that a believer would carve time out of the day and make a priority to spend time in prayer. My friends, let's bring it back. It's not old-fashioned, it's essential to have passionate prayer lives within us. We're not only bringing our requests, of course that's a part of it, but we're lifting up God in praise. We're declaring His goodness and our ears are open to hear what He has to say to us. And I believe this is a key part of overcoming doubt is bringing back a priority of prayer. This all started. This all started with a man asking Jesus to help him overcome his doubts and unbelief. Those common causes of doubt that I went through today. Doubt because of danger, because of distress, because of delay, disappointment, double-mindedness, distractions, drifting, and some ideas on how to overcome doubt. Find the definite, find the solid, find the concrete, find the settled. Plan for long-term, have a lifelong commitment. Have true expectations. Don't be surprised that the world is unfair and unjust and difficult. Remember those key moments. Remind yourself of how you have seen God come through. And be dependent on prayer, not in theory, not in platitudes, not in nice sounding words, but developing a true, passionate, sincere prayer life. Doubt and unbelief don't have to have a strong grip on our lives, but I truly believe that we can overcome that we don't have to be drowned by our doubts and unbelief, but we can call upon Jesus just like the boy's father in Mark 9, and we can ask, help me with my doubts. Help me overcome my unbelief. And He is faithful and will come alongside us and help us overcome. I got a couple of questions for you. If you're not in the habit of writing these down, maybe today's the best day to get started. But a couple of questions that might help you reflect on this this week. The first thing is, which of the seven common causes of doubt is affecting you most right now? Which of the seven common causes of doubt is affecting you most right now? Now, in a year's time, it might be something different. But what about right now? Danger, distress, delay, disappointment, double-mindedness, distractions, drifting. Which of those is causing the most effect in your life right now? Second question. What impact is doubt having in your life? And what would change if you overcome doubts? What impact is doubt having in your life and what would change if you overcame doubts? Your doubts are not fatal. My friends, there's always the bounce back. Consider the seven examples that I used today. Jesus calmed the storm that was freaking out the disciples. He forgave Peter for denying him. David did escape from King Saul and David went on to be the greatest king Israel would ever know. The people that were devastated with disappointment after the fall of Jerusalem, but God did rise up a generation that would rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. 
the double-minded people that James wrote about, he's asking them to stop being all over the place so that they can singularly find their trust in Jesus. Though we might want to run off to Thessalonica like Demas did, the door is wide open for us to come home. We might be drifting and blending into the world around us, but instead of standing out for the right reasons, but there's the chance and there's the call to transform. No matter what reasons any of us have for seeing doubt creep in, we can overcome, and a part of overcoming is leaving the causes of doubts behind. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we're going to go back into time of worship. Lord, this topic of, of doubt among your believers and people that are following you, Lord, it's, it's a huge topic. And Lord, I acknowledge and recognize that there's no way we could have explored this massive topic this morning. But Lord, may there be something that means something to people in here, Lord. Lord, a, a phrase, a sentence, a bone of the Bible verse that ready, Lord, but something that's grabbed a hold of people that you're using to grab a hold of people's hearts today. So the Lord, so that we can address and we can think about it and we can change our perspective on the doubt that's in our lives so that, Lord, we can have a renewed confidence in who you are, a renewed surety of your promise. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Lord, we're asking you to move in the lives of us today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend some more time in worship.